The second hour is on <coughs> gastrointestinal foreign bodies. And so I'm going to be talking about, you know, diagnosis and management of foreign bodies, but I'm going to split into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the upper GI tract. So talk about things stuck in the uh, oropharynx, esophagus, uh, and abdomen and uh, upper duodenum area. And then the second part, which is the fun part, is on the rectal foreign bodies. So in terms of epidemiology of the... Uh, uh, GI form bodies in the upper GI tract. So the groups that are at risk are pediatric patients, um, patients who are edentulous, especially with fluid <coughs> bolses, and then patients who are incarcerated since they just want their ticket out of the jail, and then also psychiatric patients. Um, so I couldn't find any more recent statistics, but according to a 1996 study, there are approximately 1,500 deaths annually in the US due to GI foreign bodies. All right, so we're going to first talk about the anatomy. You guys <coughs> reviewed over this last week, so I want you guys to help me out with answering this question. So going from proximal to distal GI tract, I, uh, I want you guys to tell me uh, where are the culprit areas where foreign bodies get stuck. So Erica, with you first. What's the most proximal area of the GI tract? Uh, proximal part? Yeah. I'm going to go... So, yeah, the crack, um, area is like in the proximal esophagus. And what level of an x-ray might you see the foreign body? This is like C3, C4 or C6. All right, so around the thoracic inlet area. So you'll see in the uh, C6 area. And approximately 75% of children have foreign bodies in this region. Okay? All right, where is the next culprit area? Uh, Austin. Um, maybe the GE junction? Nope. Aortic arch. So aortic arch, yes. Where, where, is, where would you find that on x-ray? Like if you look at the, it's around T4 area. So aortic arch in Corona. All right, so uh, Juan, where's the next place? I'm going to go with the GE junction. Good, GE junction. And what level of the vertebra are you going to see that? It's probably around uh, T8. Mm, so... Uh, in some places, it just says in general, two to four levels above the gastric bubble, and typically that's around the T11 and T12 area. Okay, so that's the area. So that those are the really most important parts in the esophagus. And then once you get beyond the esophagus, um, uh, where else would you find culprit areas? Pylorus. So you'll find it pylorus, right? The gastric outlet. And then what's next? Nope. You'll find it in the duodenal sweep, so where the duodenum curves around. And then the last part is the ileocecal valve. Any questions about that? All right, so in terms of the history, make sure to get the description of the item. So children tend to pick up things they, they see around them, and the most common are coins. Um, now, there was actually a, a case series in which over eight years they took uh, account of like all the foreign body cases, adults and children, and they found that close to a third of the items ingested are sharp objects. So that's one thing to be aware of. And then in addition, uh, take note of any uh, bezoar-forming behavior. So a person who 
eats hair and all that stuff, they may get what's called a trichobezoar, which is right here. Okay? Yeah, that's a hairball. <laughs> so, in terms of symptoms, you may get dysphagia or drooling, uh, which drooling usually comes from a you know complete obstruction of the esophagus uh, or higher. And then uh, you may get patients who complain of retching and vomiting. Or patients who simply say, I feel like I have something stuck in my, uh, in my throat area. Now, patients may also complain of chest pain or neck pain, and patients may have respiratory symptoms. So they may have wheezing, choking, coughing, and dyspnea. And then lastly, for patients who have basically foreign bodies which may be stuck distally, they may just be complaining of some abdominal pain. In the past medical history, make sure to ask about any anatomic abnormalities that they may have. Like sometimes you may have elderly people who say, I have strictures in my esophagus, I've had this happen before in which I got this uh, big piece of meat stuck in the esophagus. Or other things uh, including, like some people may have esophageal stents. So make sure to be able to ask these specific questions just because if in general you're like, any significant past medical history, they may forget certain things to mention about. And on history, you may get either a body packer or a body stuffer. So what is this x-ray depicting? <laughs> body packer or body stuffer? Good. So this is what you see. You see these packets all through here. All right. So the packer. Packer are people who are so-called mules, okay? They're carrying drug packets that are carefully packaged and then they're asked to, you know, they swallow it and then afterwards when they reach their destination, they poop it out and that's how the drug is accumulated. So usually they pack them in condoms, okay? So usually it's like two layers of condoms and two things that you may see on the x-ray uh, with body packers is what's called a double condom sign. And a double condom sign is that they use two condoms and there's a little bit of air stuck between the condoms and you'll see this enhancement on the edge. The other thing you might see is what's called a rosette-like uh, uh, rosette sign in which there is air trapped in the knot in which they tie off the drug. And so that, those are two things that you might be able to see. Now, what are the patients that usually see symptoms of, in terms of toxicity of the drug? Packer or stuffer? Stuffer. Okay, stuffer. Why? Yes, because they hastily swallow it, and so some of that drug is going to leak out, and so they may experience some toxicity. Now, if a packer experiences toxicity, it's usually massive just because each of those packets carry a massive amount of drugs. So what's the, the, the distinction between a packer and a stuffer? So the body packer is the basically the radiographic finding. You can usually find on radiograph because they usually have lots of packets. Um, and as we talked about, they systemically stuff the drug while the stuffer is people who's running from the law and they just immediately, they quickly stuff it. But that's an important distinction and you'll be asked about on board exams. So. All right, so on physical examination, Make sure to look at the oral fangs closely. Make sure to see if you see any foreign body there. And you can use the nasopharyngeal scope or direct laryngoscopy to try to look for it if you don't see anything. But in addition to that, you should try to look for any indirect evidence of foreign body ingestion, such as a person who has like a missing denture, because that sometimes can be a foreign body that's stuck, or a person who um, has a little bit of a scratch or laceration in their oral pharynx. 
And in addition, you should examine the neck and palpate for any crepitus. Is sometimes the GI foreign body may cause perforation. So this is an example of an x-ray of a case of a person who actually swallowed a fish bone which caused a perforation. And as a result, you can see all the pneumomediastinum. You can see the subcutaneous air on the neck. So make sure to look for that when you examine a patient. Um, so for... Um, for imaging, the first step is to get radiographs in terms of diagnostic testing. There really isn't any laboratory test that's, you know, that's really necessary in terms of evaluating foreign bodies. So uh, with x-rays, make sure to get a PA lateral chest x-ray for esophageal foreign body as well as a lateral neck film. And with the orientation, you can, you can get the distinction whether the uh, foreign body is in the esophagus or in the, um, in the trachea. So can anybody... Um, I have a slide later on, and I can ask you guys like whether the thing's stuck in the esophagus or trachea, and based on orientation. So, if one of the things that you should keep note is that if there is no foreign body that you see on the plane films, don't think that there's no foreign body there. The sensitivity of plane films are pretty poor. In one study looking at fish bones, only 25% of the fish bones were detected on plane film. So, other things that you can uh, consider one thing that I've never done, but I've read about, is to use um, oral contrast soaked cotton ball. So you basically have them swallow a cotton ball soaked with oral contrast, and where it lodges is where the foreign body is. But as you probably, uh, you know, you know, take a step back and think about it, it probably is not a really good test. Now, for use, if you end up using oral contrast, uh, barium is the first type of oral contrast you should think of using and because uh, barium is probably gives the best radiological images however if there's any concern for perforation you should be using a water-soluble contrast um, CT scans are becoming more commonplace in terms of evaluating foreign bodies and it's probably self-explanatory and then for pay, uh, for you know any suspicion of a person who has um, ingested a metal foreign body or like patients who have ingested a metal foreign body you know of and are basically the patient comes back for follow-up one thing that you can use is a handheld metal detector to see if they light it Oh, so this picture is of a 75-year-old woman who had ingested 75 pieces of silverware. Yeah, I should have uh, copied the picture of the, all the forks and spoons like laid out after they had extracted it. Okay, so in, term, in general, under most circumstances, if you find the foreign body in the distal esophagus or further, you just need to observe um, observe them, and if there are foreign bodies stuck, it um, you know proximal to it. Usually, you should take steps in terms of removing it. Now, there are certain things that are worth mentioning about. So, button batteries. So, button batteries, if they're stuck in the esophagus, they can cause burns within six hours. So, what happens is the esophagus closes over, uh, closes around it, and it closes the circuit and causes a burn. So those things really do need immediate removal. Now, if you find it stuck in the stomach, one thing you can do is to monitor it for 48 hours. If it still stays in the stomach, that is the time that you should uh, ask uh, GI to remove the uh, uh, button battery. And so for this kid, 
you see the double ring sign that you, is typical of a button battery. And tell me why you would say that this patient's, uh, the button battery is stuck in the esophagus rather than the trachea. So the orientation. So it's in a coronal orientation. Okay, just because the, the, the way that the trachea is shaped, that typically that's oriented the other direction if it's stuck in the trachea. All right. Now, um, sharp objects, typically you should um, remove the sharp objects. However, if it's something like a nail or screw, sometimes uh, the decision can be made to observe the patient because what happens is some reason um, with peristalsis, what happens is the nail or screw is usually reoriented in a way that the smooth area passes first and not the sharp area. So that's one thing to think about. So you don't necessarily have to take out all sharp objects. But other things like razor blades, you should consider trying to take them out. Now, objects wider than two centimeters should be under consideration for taking out because they may not be able to pass through the pylorus. And then objects longer than six centimeters should be removed because they may not be able to pass around the curve around the duodenum area. And then there had been recent talk about magnets. You guys probably remember like a Gray's Anatomy episode where a kid ingested like two magnets and caused perforation. Um, so there is actually, um, there was uh, an article published in the MMWR in 2008 by the CDC which talked about these uh, magnets and talking about 20 cases in which kids have died or had you know, significant surgical problems due to these magnets. And one of them that died happened to have two magnets that basically stuck two pieces of bowel together and then, and then it caused a volvulus. And, sorry? Yeah. Sure. If you eat all of them at once, you may be safe. If you eat just one magnet, you may be safe. But if you eat multiple magnets at different periods of time, you're not safe. Um, but anyways, if you have suspicion of uh, kids ingesting magnets, then you should uh, have them considered for immediate uh, removal. And this is just a picture of the uh, of a brand called uh, Magnetix uh, magnets, and uh, uh, this was a set of magnet toys that were actually recalled back in 2006 because of the concern of the magnets sticking around. Now in terms of other situations, if you decide to observe the patient and the patient is showing signs of bowel obstruction or bowel perforation, or sometimes if there's no progression of the foreign body in the intestines in 24 hours, that's uh, a time where you may have to consider having the foreign body removed. So there are different methods for removal. The, uh, I guess the one that we're most familiar with is endoscopy. Consult GI and have them do endoscopy to remove the foreign body um, in, if it's stuck in the esophagus. There are also other methods that uh, you may be practicing at another institution or you're in a facility which you don't have GI coverage that you may consider. And one is using a Foley catheter under fluoroscopy. So you can basically insert a Foley catheter and pass the object and then inflate the balloon with radiographic contrast. Then you can do an x-ray or if you're doing it under fluoroscopy you'll be able to see that's beyond the object and then you pull it out. And with these you usually have the patient basically like in a head down position on, on their decubitus um, on their side in order to have that extracted to prevent them from aspirating. The other method is called the bougenage method, which is what's depicted here. This is from an ASEP article a few uh, years ago in which, it's for, for, in which it's showing how 
they're using this object called the bougenage, and they numb up the throat. And then what happens is you actually push down the uh, foreign body down into the stomach to allow it to pass. And there's really strict criteria. It can't be any, you know, the patient shouldn't be, you know, should be able to, um, you know, tolerate this. If you don't think the kid can tolerate this, you may have to consider scoping. They have to be blunt objects, not sharp objects, things like that. Now, with, if the object is stuck in the stomach and bowel, you can sometimes consider endoscopy, but if it's too deep, you may have to consider having uh, uh, surgery come down and evaluate the patient for surgical removal. So there are a few special situations for foreign bodies, and I'm going to just briefly cover over it. And uh, first is food bolus. So with food boluses, one thing you may consider initially is to give them glucagon, 0.5 to 2 milligrams. And one thing you should note is that you should pre-treat them with an antiemetic. Because if there's a stuck foreign body and the person's retching and vomiting and, and sort of like dry heaving, it increases their chance of getting a perforation. One thing that uh, I know Dr. Davis had mentioned about last week that is helpful is to give me carbonated beverages along with glucagon glucagon together to allow the passage of the foreign body. Um, what you can also use and can relax the esophagus, but it's not quite so uh, helpful, is the use of nitroglycerin or nifedipine. And then the one uh, method that is contraindicated is using meat tenderizer, uh, which contains papain. So with... Hmm? We didn't really talk about atropine. No. That's because that's, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, but I thought this was getting something out of the esophagus. No, this, this is allowing, yes, this is allowing the, uh, the food bolus to go forward. Okay. Yeah, this is allowing to go forward. It's not to make them puke it up. They relax the esophageal sphincter yeah. so that it can pass the esophageal sphincter yeah. and get into the stomach. So that's allowing it to go forward. The atropine, if anything, So one thing that I forgot to mention about in terms of body packers beforehand is, uh, you know, typically we think of adults being body packers, but be cautious about little children being body packers. So there, were actually, there was actually a case study back in 2003, like a 16-year-old who had come across from a transatlantic flight from Europe, had some complaint of rectal bleeding, was found to be a body packer. And there was another one, which was a 12-year-old, in which uh, they actually had uh, been on a plane and was found to be altered, and their altered mental status resolved by the administration of Narcan. And with that, um, the kid admitted that he was a body packer. So with body packers, under most circumstances, you should let the... Uh, the drug packets pass through. You can assist with uh, bowel irrigation with polyethylene glycol. Now, just the fact that most of the time uh, packing is done with condoms, if, you know, if you've ever looked at a condom package, they say never use oil-based lubricants. And so one of the things that you should never do is to use oil-based cathartics or laxatives because it may increase the risk of rupture of these drug packets. Now, if there's any rupture of the drug packets, you should think about using the antidote. So suppose if it's an, a heroin, then what you do, you give an, you know, you do a Narcan drip. In addition, you can use charcoal to absorb any additional drug. And then uh, under certain circumstances, if there's perforation obstruction, you will have to consult surgery. 
Now in terms of endoscopy, there have been times where endoscopy have been successful, but in general, endoscopy does not have a role with body packers because usually you can only you know pull out the proximal stuff. You can't you can't really extract the um, drugs further down in the intestines, and then the risk of perforation of the drug packets is so high. Uh, with bezoars, uh, commonly you treat it with either endoscopy to extract it, or you can use enzymatic dissolution, or like for babies who have what's called lactobezoar, which is uh, when babies actually ingest basically more cow, cow's milk-like uh, formulas they may do, and are premature, they may develop lactobezoars and usually just dietary therapy may help it resolve. In terms of aftercare, um, make sure with after the endoscopy, you know, if you talk with the GI doctor, if they did the endoscopy, make sure that they actually took pictures and looked at the esophagus afterwards to make sure there were no abrasions or perforations or anything like that. If that had not been done or you did some other method which didn't require scoping, you may consider use, doing an esophagogram, so basically uh, drinking some contrast to look at the um, integrity of the esophagus to check for any perforation. Um, if you decide for a foreign body that uh, you want to observe the patient, you can always send the patient home as long as they have reliable follow-up and then you can ask them to come back in like 24 hours for a re-x-ray. And this is especially true for kids who have like button batteries who are, which are stuck past the distal esophagus. And then for patients, especially ones with food boluses, one thing is um, if you're able to get the food bolus resolved without consulting GI, you may actually uh, ask, refer them to GI because they may actually have an underlying anatomic abnormality that needs to be addressed by GI doctors uh, to prevent another reoccurrence of obstruction. And then definitely admission if there is any concern for perforation, any surgical issues, if they have any unstable vital signs, if they're a body packer and you need to monitor them, and then if there are any issues with the deep sedation, if you need to do deep sedation to do anything to extract the foreign body. Any questions before I change gears to rectal foreign bodies? Nope. All right, so going on with rectal foreign bodies. So, history. It's difficult to obtain. In one study, one-third of the cases uh, of patient, patients who ingested foreign bodies had, any, had mental health disorders. So, sometimes you may not be able to get a history out of them. Second is people are reluctant to talk about their sexual practices. So, such as this patient here who has a vibrator in their abdomen. So, one thing to think about uh, when a person comes with a chief complaint, if they have anal pain, constipation, rectal pain, bleeding, inability to urinate, think about foreign body as one of the things in your uh, differential. Yes. And the other thing is, um, make sure to see if you can, uh, you know, as accurately define the size, shape, and physical characteristics of this foreign body. And then one thing to not discount is sometimes uh, something may be stuck around the rectal area just because of something they consumed from the upper GI tract. So don't discount the fact that if they never stuffed anything up their butt, that they may still actually have something stuck in their uh, rectal area. So on physical exam, you need to do a rectal exam to look for the foreign body. However, you should do it under caution. If you get a history that it could be something sharp, glass, or whatever, you may decide to do the imaging first before you decide to do the rectal exam. Okay? 
So with the rectal exam, make sure to try to palpate for the foreign body. The other thing is look for any indirect signs, such as bloody discharge or any loose rectal toe. Can anyone guess what this is? Yes. A billiard ball. <laughs> so, um, so with diagnostic imaging, of course, the first thing you can do is you can directly visualize it with an anoscope or use rigid sigmoidoscopy. I don't think we really, at least I haven't done any uh, rigid sigmoidoscopy. Um, and then radiological, go with plain abdominal radiograph, and then you can also do some contrast studies as well as CT. So what is this in here? So it's a, apparently it's a peanut butter jar. <laughs> apparently the patient said that he was trying to feed his dog and then he fell back and somehow this peanut butter jar got lodged. <laughs> so in the radiographs, one thing you should look is for both for the foreign body as well as looking for any free air. So any indirect signs of perforation. All right. In terms of management, <laughs> so for the removal, sometimes you may have to consider sedation, analgesia. Usually the first step for removal, if it's something that you think it's safe to remove, is to use your own hand, fingers to remove the foreign body. The other thing you can consider is to use anoscope or speculum and use ring forceps to try to extract it. Now sometimes things are very hard to extract because of suction that um, on the object and one thing you can do is to use a Foley catheter, uh, uninflated, basically pass it through beyond the foreign object and then you insufflate air to get rid, of this, uh, get rid of the vacuum and then what happens is you can inflate the Foley balloon and then extract the foreign object. And then if there's any uh, time where you can't extract the foreign body, if, there, if it's a dangerous extraction, so suppose like there's a light bulb stuck in there and you, know, you don't want it to break out, you consult surgery to have it done. Under most cases with very large foreign bodies, you're going to have to consult surgery to have um, the foreign body removed. Yeah. So I had one of these with um, actually the Dr. Osborne, the guy that uh, fell off the chair onto very large. just mainly uh, numb them up if they're really if they really can't tolerate it, you should sedate them so that they'll relax their muscle and then you can use the assistance of like a speculum to basically expand it so I, I recommend not flailing around in the ED if you can get it easily great if yeah you can, they, they take a person to the OR put them under don't even have to cut and they can usually get that yeah so in terms of aftercare usually if the foreign body removal was simple and did not cause any increased pain or bleeding uh, Re-examination is uh, probably unnecessary. Um, otherwise, you may need to have a post-removal sigmoidoscopy performed. Um, abrasions usually only need close follow-up, and then with runs with perforation or rectal laceration, you may need to hospitalize the patients. And then if, uh, if there's any signs of perforation or peritonitis, definitely start on IV antibiotics. 
And can anyone guess what this object was? Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear. You're correct. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can sort of make up the wings over here. Like, uh, How do you know? Oh, I can just tell the all right, so review. Questions for you guys to answer. Dr. Wong? Yes. What is the role with like law enforcement and like detained foreign bodies? Like, so, if a cop says, hey, he's got something up there, get uh -huh. it out? Like, are you required to do that? Or what's like, how does that work? You know, there really wasn't anything in terms of literature talking about the exact thing, but ultimately you have to use your good kind of clinical judgment in terms of what needs to be done. Um, I guess ultimately they can. Even, you know, even, even on a prisoner, yeah. they can't do anything against their will. So. Yeah. No. so if they're under arrest, coming from prison, they're like, hey, this guy has whatever, razor blade up there. You're just like, if any prisoner doesn't want it, then you just. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wait for task, which you can't do a medical procedure on a prisoner. Yeah. So yeah. if you have a drug packer that comes in like off the flight, same thing, yeah. completely non-responsive, you have Narcan, and then all of a sudden you find out they're a drug packer, yeah. you pass everything, then what do you do? Well, that usually is dealt with in the ICU because they okay. you, because usually you have multiple drug pa uh, packets yeah. and it requires some time for them to pass. Okay. And usually they, you know, the ICU watches them until they basically just pass clear, you know, just clear um, fluid and nothing else. So. So it's not usually something we have to worry about with body packers in terms of their disposition. We usually just admit them to the ICU okay. because they... But like, and do you need to contact the police? Does the ICU take care of that? Does no one contact? Like, where does, where does that happen? Well, I mean, it depends. Um, I think... It's much more likely that the authorities are bringing yeah. the patient to you yeah. rather than you have to bring the patient to the authorities. Yes. Okay. One thing is that there has actually been an influx of patients who come in the ED because of increased security due to 9-11 and things like that, finding body packers. So. There's, no, there's no call for us to rat on our patients okay. I mean, in general. Um, Unless they threaten somebody else. Unless they threaten somebody yeah. else. Okay. But if they just did something mm -hmm. themselves, you know, if somebody comes out body packing, there wouldn't be any reason for us to call the police. Well, okay. How know, then do we, we dispose would have, of the drugs? We would have to call our security to dispose of the drugs, okay. and then they would do it. Yeah. they do. The drug mule ought to know exactly how many packets they have. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to tell you. Yeah. All right, here are some review questions. A concerned father brings in his toddler who has swallowed a button battery. Which of the following is true about his condition? Okay. Are you guys ready for the next question? Yeah, okay. All right, which of the following is not acceptable in the management of esophageal food bolus impactions? All right. A child swallows a coin. What do you expect to see on radiograph? Guys, done? Okay. Any other questions? All right. Thank you very much.